Welcome once again to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to Professor Jajit Chadder, Director of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, the UK's oldest and most influential economic think tank. In this wide-ranging interview, Professor Chadder argues why central bank money printing should be reined in, and with inflation at a 30-year high, explains to younger viewers and listeners what high inflation is really like. Professor Chadder also argues that it would be absolutely possible for the government to shelve national insurance rises scheduled for April. And he says such a move makes a lot of sense. We're two men of a certain age, oh, if I may say so. One of us may be older than the other. We, we <laughs> remember the 70s. Uh, we remember the early 90s. Uh, we remember double-digit inflation. How would you describe to a younger audience what happens when inflation starts getting up to 7, 8, 9, 10%? What it means for households, what it means for firms, investment and jobs. Because high inflation, it isn't just about a cost of living squeeze, is it? Which we're all now seeing is emerging and becoming a major part of British politics. It goes beyond that. I, I want to make a, a point that that, that is, is sometimes missed. And I think the control of, of money or the stability of money, let me put it that way, not the control of money, but the stability of money, by which I mean, if I plan to hold a certain number of pounds, I have a certain idea in two or three years' time what goods and services I can buy with that. That's what I mean by the stability of money. It's in fact one of the primary functions of the state, along with defence and education and the provision of public services, ensuring that price, pricing power of money is stabilised over time is critical. Now, you might say to me, you can't make that, you know, why are you making that statement? Mm. So let me go on to say what happens when you lose control of money. First, the people who get particularly hit by an inflation are those who are reliant on their income from wages alone on a month-to-month basis, which is most of us. I'm in that bracket as well. But within that, there's a, a large distribution of people on higher incomes and lower incomes. You and I are fortunate to have had a university education and built up our human capital and probably earning wages at, at, towards the higher end of the distribution. Many people have lower wages. That means a larger fraction of their income goes on necessities that are related to food, accommodation and energy. And what we tend to see within inflation is that those prices tend to go up first very quickly. So what you have is a world in which you get this shock, which is called an inflation, and it particularly hits households on low incomes that cannot move up very easily. What we've seen, for example, in the last 10 or 12 years is that particularly those on low wages have not had their real wages. So that means the purchasing power of the wages, wages they get. inflation. Exactly. The purchase hasn't actually improved very much at all. So you're now telling them after Brexit, after COVID, your purchasing power is going to fall even more unless we get hold of inflation. Other problem with inflation is, okay, there's a shock to some prices, but then what we also find is unless we absolutely respond in the right way, other prices want to catch up. Wages want to catch up, service prices want to catch up, and then you have a generalised inflation. And as you have a generalised and persistent inflation, the world gets very uncertain. Remember I said a few minutes ago, it's really important that when people are making decisions about savings or about what they're going to do in their careers, they have a view about how many goods and services they can buy in a year or two. Uh, as a result of an investment that they make or, or indeed the job that they decide to take. If they don't know where that's going to be, the whole world gets very uncertain. 
People can't plan. People have got to say, so why should I bother to do anything now to improve my lot, move to another part of the country, become mobile, move from London to Newcastle, where my, my standard might be better, if I'm not sure what my purchasing power is going to be in two or three times. What we find is that things start to slow down. Investors defer investment. They go, I don't know what return will I get in sterling in a couple of years' time. I'm going to hold back. If you're a business leader, why yeah. would you build an extra factory? Because you don't know the value of money. You don't know the price you're going to get. You don't know the, the price you're going to get. And, and you don't know whether you're going to be able to get the workers because it all gets very sticky. One of the problems we find is that mobility falls. Firms don't start up. There's an issue out there about firms being born. Yeah. One of the things that we've seen that maybe gives some hope as we come out of COVID is there's been a lot of firm births. So that means new people wanting to start firms. Actually, it looks like a lot of them are in the low productivity areas that we might talk about a little bit later on. But it, it, it just stops that inventiveness, that innovation. That risk-taking that is the essence of our society which, yeah. from which all jobs are created, it, it, whether in a small firm yeah. or a huge conglomerate. That, 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 that's exactly right. So, so that is why controlling inflation or ensuring the stability of money over time is so very important. I think we might come to this later on. As economists, we need to, need to do a much better job of explaining that because one of the problems we now have, and it's actually similar to debates on even defence or other areas, because we've been successful on this issue for about 30 years, yeah. right? and you and I had a formative experience when we fell out of the ERM in 1992, and we thought, never again, we need to stabilise yeah. money. Um, the next generation have no memory of that at all. That's 30 years ago this year. Mm. So they don't know what happens when you lose control of money. And we need to do a better job of explaining that because it looks like you're fighting the last war. You're not actually. We that war still is there. We were both studying economics mm. at, at university mm. in the early 90s, weren't mm. we? And when the UK fell out of the mm. exchange rate mechanism, interest rates went into double digits instantly. Mm. Firms were ruined overnight. Yeah. Families... Yeah. Uh, housing, mm. their, their, their finances mm. were destroyed. Mm. It took the Conservatives pretty much a political generation mm. to regain their reputation mm. for economic competence, did it not? Yes. So, Jajit Chadha, we've moved from a situation where we were told to think by the Bank of England and others that this inflation is transitory and mm. we don't need to worry about it and you know, awkward mm. newspaper columnists should stop highlighting yeah. it. To, to one now where it is widely accepted that mm. inflation is going to be here for a while. The Governor of the Bank of England said to the House of Commons Treasury Select Committee, in terms, it's going to last 12 to 18 months, this cost of living squeeze. How high could the consumer price index measure of inflation go? We've been looking at that intensively, uh, as many economists have, and, and very early uh, in the middle of last year, we thought it was going to go to at least 5% yeah. this year. We're now looking at 7% in the first part of this year. And here's the really interesting thing. Even if you think it's only temporary, a temporary 7% inflation in light of a target of 2% is going to cause a significant fraction of people to think that you're not going to get to 2% very quickly. So if you take the midpoint... Mm. You could very well imagine people thinking, you know what, I'll plan around 5% yeah. or I'll plan around 4%. They won't necessarily take the peak 
as what they think inflation is going to be. But it's very hard and for so sensible people. And so firms mark up their prices. To 4% and 5%. Wage bargainers yep. push for higher wages. The, infl- the inflation expectation becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, so they start to expect that. You know, you, they won't expect 7 with a number as such as seven, we've had 5.2, numbers such as seven, coming into view as we go into uh, along this year, particularly in the second quarter. You can imagine people, as you say, thinking, well, you know, I want to hold on to my workers. I'm going to have to think about the wage rise I'm giving them. If I'm going to do that, I need to mark up, because that's a major part of my firm's costs, against yeah. that and raise the prices of my output. Otherwise, I will be insolvent. I may not have the workers that I need and I won't have enough money coming in in order to meet the bills that I face because the energy bills have gone up as well. That's why you get this momentum for inflation to increase. You mentioned energy bills there, Mm. Dr. Chadder. Everyone knows that the off-gem energy price cap is going to be raised. It's going to kick in in Mm. April. The the extent to which it's being raised will be announced in early February. Mm. As a point of principle, mm. do you think there should be VAT on fuel bills? It's, it's, it's a necessity. It's, 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 Fuel's it's a, a necessity. Fuel is a necessity, and we don't have VAT on children's clothing. Uh, it's an interesting question as how we might rethink some of the taxes that we have on goods that we're, we're buying. Um, to the extent to which energy bills are both a necessity and an intermediate good, there's maybe a question for the extent to which it should have VAT on it. VAT really should be levied on consumer goods, so the ones right at the end of the distribution. And to the extent to which energy is a large component of many other goods, there may be a strong argument for having it lower rated than than other goods. We know these extra tax rises are coming in Mm. in April, Mm. coinciding with that increase in fuel Mm. bills. How unusual would it be if those extra national insurance increases, Mm. employer and employee contributions, were actually reverse before they were even implemented. This is now an active debate on mm. the Tory backbenches yeah. because, because we have grown relatively quickly because of the bounce back mm-hmm. from the pandemic collapse. Mm. We have grown relatively quickly in 2021. The Treasury's coffers, while there's lots of debt around, yeah. there is more tax revenue than Rishi yeah. Sunak thought there was going to be. That's yeah. unanswerably yes. true. And yes. I know your institute has mm. been focusing yeah. on that. So it may be that these national insurance rises that were announced last year Mm. by Rishi Sunak in order to plug a hole, it may be able to reverse them now in order to address this cost of living crisis. We didn't think at the time that they were necessary, those national insurance contributions. And to the extent to which there has been some positive news um, on the government's finances, it would be absolutely possible not to increase those national insurance contributions. Essentially, they are a tax on jobs. And they're a tax on jobs, particularly for lower paid uh, employees. And in a world in which those employees have been most hit by the crisis, it's something that ought to be thought about not implementing. I think it's entirely possible to do that. And would it, it would be responsible to not implement those tax rises, well, given that we've got extra tax yeah. revenue we didn't think we were going to have, given where yeah. we are... Well, with the cost of living squeeze. I I think within the framework of understanding that there is a large amount of public debt, higher than we would ideally like it to be, that we have to think about what revenues we need to draw upon to bring that down. But remembering that ultimately it's determined by the level of growth in the economy. 
didn't need necessarily to introduce those taxes at that time. There's also the question of the path of fiscal expenditure. That means the extent to which public expenditure is falling over time. And arguably, that was a little bit too tight at the time of the budget. That means there was a little bit too much expenditure being taken out of the economy. And perhaps a bit more could have been given into public investment, which we know, if appropriately allocated, I'm not talking about white elephants here, mm. is something that can help the growth mm. in the economy that we're talking about. And to the extent that that would be the policy choice, I think that would be preferable because that policy mix of slightly looser fiscal policy with more public investment and slightly lower taxes would inject some demand into the economy that would then make it easier for the Bank of England to raise interest rates. So something that economists often talk about is the monetary fiscal mix. And what we've had, arguably, in the last decade is a world in which monetary policy has been a bit too loose with interest rates hovering around zero with the Bank of England involved in the purchase of government debt. Mm. Um, and at the same time, fiscal policy has been going through a period of retrenchment in terms of its expenditure. If we just change that mix a little bit, fiscal policy could contribute a little bit more to growth and it would be a little bit easier for the Bank of England to raise interest rates, which would ultimately help save us and the allocation of capital around the country. So going back to these tax rises mm. coming in in April, part of a triple whammy, if mm. you like, inflation, higher energy bills, mm tax rises, are you saying that to not implement those tax rises would be possible, credible, preferable, all three? Fiscal policy, it is a very much a long-run idea. So the government has to respond to shocks, temporary shocks as they come along, use its debt policy to try and smooth those shocks so that the kind of people we're talking about, those at the bottom of the income distribution, those who face that particular shocks, don't suffer the full consequence of that shock. Fiscal policy was rightly used in 2020 to offset that. Mm. We increased public With the debt. furlough scheme. With the furlough mm. scheme. And that meant that the whole of the economy was not hit as hard as it should have mm. been. In order to use those kinds of fiscal tools, you need the credibility that in the end, fiscal policy will be righted. And what I mean by that is that debt will slowly be paid off mm. relative to GDP. So providing you show flexibility, which might mean reducing taxes when it's appropriate to do so, but at the same time, I still have a framework that's going to deliver lower public debt over time, it's perfectly possible and feasible to do that. So you shouldn't do it in isolation. That's why I go back to the point about thinking carefully about the whole set of taxes we've got, thinking carefully about the framework and having a commitment for debt to fall over time. Possible, feasible, but given the cost of living squeeze, preferable. It's, it's certainly something that would make a lot of sense. There's been such a focus on COVID, rightly. As we speak, England is coming out of those Plan B mm -hmm. COVID restrictions. Yeah. Fingers and toes crossed. Yes, absolutely. Scotland, Wales, yeah. Northern Ireland will follow yeah. soon. And indeed, all our yeah. neighbouring countries. It seems to me now that we're getting back into the good old politics of tax and spend. Rachel Reeves has put a marker down. She's calling the Tories uh, a high tax, low growth mm. party in a complete reversal, a turning around mm. of the political mm. telescope, if you like. Do you think the government's got a decent story to tell when it comes to tax and spend, when it comes to fiscal policy, given that this is a Conservative government that has been uh, you know, taxing and spending at a rate that hasn't been seen in this country, quite literally, 
since the end of the Second World War, since mm. Clement Attlee. It, it, it's probably a little bit early to say that we're back to normal times. Looks like output is now back at the level it was at the end of 2019. So that means we've lost two years of output. Mm. Mm. The country itself is, is maybe just about going to stop the restrictions on social interactions that we have benefited from throughout the rest of our, you know, the earlier parts of our lives, mm. the pre-COVID period. There'll be a nat naturally a period of adjustment to that. Just at the end of a war, and this has been a war against COVID, it takes time for everything to settle down. That could well take a large part of this year for us to settle down and work out what we're doing next. So it's important that we're not too abrupt in that. If we talk about the kind of things that economists talk about, is there more room for the government to borrow money? Can we take time? The answer is probably yes. There's no need for an urgent response here. I think what I sense around the place is this is a moment to reset, reevaluate the priorities that we've got in a country, the kind of priorities that you and I grew up with was it's all about getting a job, concentrating in the financial sector, a particular model there of high value services that the UK mm. could mm. send to the rest of the world. I think that model was questioned by the financial crisis. Maybe there needs to be more of a role for manufacturing and goods production and vocational education, mm. things that maybe we haven't quite got right. And it's very important, I think, we take a step back before jumping back into this, you're a taxer, I'm a spender, you're a high growth person. Mm. These kinds of bits of rhetoric don't really help. Sort of ideological, yeah, it, it's Cold not, War divide almost. It, it's not, we've all lived, I'm sorry to say this to you, but you know we've lived as a country, as a set of individuals, through an exceptionally difficult couple of years. Mm. And what I'd like more than anything else is we come together and decide what we want to do next, which is address the real problems that we're talking about, rather than getting into a world of rhetoric and thinking it's back to normal. It shouldn't be back to how it was. Maybe that's just me being uh, idealistic in, in all of this, but we have all lived through something quite unique and, and very trying. And I would like to use that to focus on the genuine problems the country faces. As we draw to a close, I'd like to mm. ask you this. A lot of our listeners and viewers have contacted On The Money to ask me mm. about the Bank of England's quantitative easing programme. You know, what is it? Why is it? Mm. How? Um, you've written quite a lot about this. Yes. Um, fellow professional economists have tended to steer clear of this subject because mm. it's so politically touchy mm. and governments have been become so reliant mm. on their central banks, effectively buying government debt with mm. newly created money. It's yes. in the UK, the US, mm. Japan, mm. Uh, the Euro Eurozone through the European yep. Central Bank. When future historians look back, how will they view quantitative easing? Well, at first, um, when it was started in the light of the financial crisis. 2009, yeah, 2010. Exactly. Mm. Um, it was a reasonable response. Remember, the Bank of England or any central bank typically tries to do is move interest rates up and down mm. to stabilise the economy. If the economy is running too hot, you raise interest rates. If it's running too cold, you cut them. The economy was running so cold after the financial crisis, there was a danger of it freezing over. So interest rates got to basically zero and there was no more room on the downside. So the bank, central banks had to find another way of influencing market interest rates. And one of those is long-term interest rates that are essentially set by governments when they're selling their debt. And those long-term interest rates are typically affected by movements in those policy rates. But if you can't move them anymore, you need to find another way of affecting them. So the idea of quantitative easing that was first tried 
in the modern period by Japan was then implemented in other parts of the world. And the idea there was essentially to help drive down long-term interest rates to respond to the ongoing shock of the financial crisis. You said it on, a country like the UK was very sensitive to the financial sector. So it was important that the, the financial crisis didn't uh, lead to a deeper and longer recession than it would otherwise have done. Sure. So the first set of interventions made a lot of sense. And the first set of interventions, it was launched as a 50 billion pound mm. program. Yeah. We're now up above 800 yeah, billion. Nearly 900. So it's now... 16 yeah. times more than the original yeah. policy. Yeah. So, yeah. so, exactly right. This was paraded and explained and accepted as a temporary measure. Kind of a lifestyle choice, isn't well, it? <laughs> well, the real danger is that, that governments then issue more debt than yeah. they would otherwise. Because they know their central bank will buy it. Because it's cheaper. And the central banks know that if they keep <coughs> creating money... Financial markets love it. It yeah. finds its way into stocks and bonds. Yeah. All the wealthy people get even wealthier. Yeah. And ordinary people have to deal with the inevitable inflation. So you have a, a world in which this, this, these interventions in holding government bonds have got larger and have operated for longer than we thought was necessary in 2009 and 10. So it's become an issue that needs to be dealt with and we need plans as to how we're going to reduce or get rid of that debt. Now, the original plans were for that debt to be, having bought it, increased its price and lowered interest rates. The idea was to sell it back into the market. Mm. Um, and as selling it back into the market would lead to its price falling and interest rates rising again. Danger is, of course, when you've got so much out there. If you suddenly made an announcement tomorrow, Liam, as governor of the Bank of England, that you were going to sell that It's only a matter of debt, time. Sell that debt back you get an enormous fall yeah. in bond prices, an enormous increase in interest rates. Which would cripple the economy. by itself yeah. would cripple the economy. Mm. So handling this is an incredibly sensitive and difficult issue. But it needs to be tackled. Absolutely. It's not We're something... not even talking about mm. how to handle it, yeah. Professor Chadler, mm. let alone handling it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is something uh, a number of people have written on how you might move away from this reliance on quantitative easing. And I think it's something that we have to think about how to move away on and sort of wean financial markets off it. That's the problem. You've been giving this to them for a very long time. They've got used to it. They've accepted these very high bond prices, these very low interest rates. And it could very well be to be a little bit um, optimistic about this, that the inflation shock we're facing along with appropriately designed fiscal policy, may help get those interest rates up beyond 1%, 2%, that would then enable us to start selling those bonds into the market or not rebuying when they, when they come to redemption so that the stock of QE starts to fall over time. And it, this might be the moment we manage that. But it needs a lot more careful signaling, a lot more careful openness. But I think it's something that is keeping central bankers awake at night. How are we going to manage this exit from QE? And if it goes wrong, not mm. to be overly pessimistic, but we've acknowledged mm. how delicate and high stakes mm. this is, if it goes wrong, mm. then you could cause another market implosion, couldn't you? If you're weaning financial markets yeah. off this sort of mm. economic crack cocaine and they have to go cold yeah. turkey, it, yeah. it, it could cause it, a it, systemic issue. We always think about economists when we think about the future as what are the worst case scenarios. We, we think about the future as the most likely path, but we're also thinking about worlds in which things happen much 
better than we might anticipate, mm. but also much worse. So we write down the negative risks. There's a whole list of things that we might think about. One is, what if there's a house price crash? What if oil prices triple? What if there's a global pandemic? Never. <laughs> what if a whole range of emerging economies can't meet their debt payments anymore? Uh, there are one or two we might want to name that seem to be in severe trouble of doing that at the moment. And then ultimately, what if there's a, a large crash in financial markets triggered by a sharp reassessment in bond prices? These are all possibilities. And to think through the consequences is incredibly important, but also the trigger for them to happen. It is always a possibility, whether it's a strong possibility or not, I'm not sure. But it, that's why ultimately it needs management. It needs explanation of how we will exit from it so that it becomes less of an issue when you announce it. No one's saying that immediately you're dumping £900 billion of bonds on the market. You're saying, well, actually, we'll do it this way. Mm. You know how we're going to do it, and we're going to manage it in such a way that it doesn't lead to a dislocation in bond prices, violent movements in bond prices, or as a result, uh, changes in equity prices and other asset prices along that as well, which the Bank of England would then have to deal with through some other mechanisms. So this is what people talk about in terms of an orderly withdrawal from quantitative easing. I think that's the thing we have to find, a mechanism for an orderly withdrawal. Well, fingers crossed we can come up with <laughs> well, one and it will actually work. Well, as you said earlier on, fingers, toes and any other extremities. Professor Chajit Chadha, great to see you. Thank you very much, Liam. Lovely to see you, as ever. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show, On The Money, at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.